again welcome you to First Methodist today. My name is David, one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome all those uh, who are worshiping in all of our worship venues today. And I especially want to welcome you uh, if you are a first-time guest with us today. And if you are a first-time guest, here's what I want to make sure does not happen today. I don't want you to feel like you're at someone else's family reunion. I don't know if you ever had that experience of being somewhere where everyone else knew what was going to happen next and you didn't know, but I want to make sure that doesn't happen for you if you are a first-time guest today. We are receiving two offerings today. If you're here for the first time, that is not normal, okay? So I don't, I don't want you to think that's what we do every single week. Uh, we're doing it this week as we wrap up uh, this series, and, and again, we're asking those who, who call First Methodist home to, to participate in that, but if you're a first-time guest, here's what I want you to know. I do not expect you to participate in that. Here's my expectation for you if this, is, if this is your first time here. I hope first that you felt warmly welcomed when you, when you came to worship today. I hope that someone uh, greeted you, shook your hand, uh, said that they were glad to see you, glad that you were here. That's our expectation for you. And I hope that at some point in the service today, may have already happened for you, it may be something that's going to happen in just a few moments, but at some point in the service today, you would experience God at work in your life. That's our hope for you. That's our prayer for you. That's, that's our expectation for you. I also want you to know, if, if this is your first time, I want you to make the connection that part of the reason that we as a family of faith do things like this is because of you. Because we, as, as a church, we believe in helping people follow Jesus, and we want to make space for you to be a part of this movement and this journey that we are on. And so one of the reasons that we ask those who are already committed to this faith family to participate in this way is to ensure that we have space for you. And so I want you to know that today uh, as we wrap up this series. What I want to do today is I want to review a little bit of what we've been talking about for three weeks, in case this is your first time or if you haven't been here uh, the last couple of weeks. I want to add one more thought on top of that before we wrap up this series, a thought that I want to suggest to you has always been at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a simple idea uh, that, that has always been there. I want to share with you three expressions of that idea from throughout Christian history. The first expression is going to come from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you want to turn in your Bible, uh, we'll be there in just a few moments. And I want to share two other expressions of that simple idea from throughout Christian history. So let me just review a little bit. You've already seen what is really the key idea we've looked at throughout the entire series, that you are richer than you realize. Part of what we hope to do, what, what I hope has happened for you over the course of three weeks is that we have redefined a little bit our perspective on this word rich. I've shared a couple of stats with you to, to help us process what that means. The first is that if your household income is $38,000 or above, you're actually in the top 4% of all wage earners in the world. If you, if you increase that number to 46,000, that actually puts you in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. And what may be even more uh, of a perspective-changing idea is that the median income in, in America, not the mean, but the median income, the most common income in America is actually 51,000, which means that if you live in this country, it is very likely that you are in the top 1% of wage earners in the entire world. Now, that's another thing that we could look at and say, well, I, I'm very grateful to be a part of this country, to live where I live, a place that has tremendous opportunity and, and abundance. That's a, that's a, that's a great thing that, that, that we celebrate, but it also, it shifts our perspective from where we live, our city, our state, and our nation, placing our perspective from a worldly perspective, and we can't help but say, wow, well, most of us got rich a long time ago. We just didn't know it. No, no one made us aware of it. And we said that's an important 
understanding because it helps us understand the challenge in our life. If, if we want to be a, a committed and faithful follower of Jesus, the challenge is learning how to be good at being rich. I want to remind you again of where that challenge comes from. Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28. You can write that down. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but there's, there's a couple of key ideas that we take from the creation story about our life, our identity, and our responsibility. It first says that you and I are created in the image of God. That means that those things that we appreciate most about God and God's character that God is loving, that God is gracious, and God is abundantly generous with us. Those things are meant to be reflected in our life because we are created in that image. When we participate in those ways, when we act in loving ways and graceful ways and generous ways, we're actually participating in what God is doing in the world because those are the things that define who God is. And you were made to do that. It's why you feel differently about yourself and your life when you do those things, when you serve and when you give and when you sacrifice. There's something that connects in you with something that is a part of the divine because God made you that way. You have that within you. The other thing that we find from, from that section of scripture is that we have a responsibility. What, what the scripture says is that human beings have been given the role of ruling over, subduing, and managing creation. This is what's different about us from everything else that's a part of creation, that we have this task of managing our lives in such a way that we bless this world that God has created. So when you think about your time, your life, the number of your days, you are called to live in such a way that you don't waste that. That you live in such a way that, that the time you have on this earth, the way you invest that, it is a way that benefits the world and benefits all of creation. The talents that you have, those things that you can do that no one else can do. You don't even know why you can do it or how you can do it, but those talents that you have, you're meant to use those to bless the entire world, to make this a better world. You're responsible for that. The treasure, the, 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 the things that you have in your life that God has blessed you with, same thing. You're meant to use that and manage that in such a way that, that you bless the world, that you, you make this a better world. That's, that's the first uh, source of, of this challenge. But the second source that we find throughout the teachings of Jesus, we've talked about this the, the first three weeks, is that our relationship with our resources actually has the potential to be the greatest obstacle in our loyalty to and love for God above all other things in our life. And I want you to hear that in an inclusive way. That's not your problem. That's not your neighbor's problem who drives a nicer car than you. It's, it's not your, your family member who, who, who you may be a little envious. It's not any of those things. It's our problem. It's humanity's problem. And we all know the sound of that voice that whispers into our life. You would be happy. You would be satisfied. You would be secure if only you had fill in the blank. We all know that voice. We all know that voice, and our relationship with our resources has the greatest, uh, has the potential to be the greatest obstacle in our life. So we looked at this theme verse from Timothy chapter 6, which says this, Command those who are rich, which again is us, in this present world, not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides for us with, with everything for our enjoyment. And, and then Paul says this, Command those who are rich to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and be generous and willing to share. And that's what we talked about in these, in these weeks leading up to this. That's the challenge. That's, that's what God calls us to do, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. So today, a simple thought we're going to add on top of that, just to wrap this up. And here's what it is. That sacrificing for others is the clearest expression of our love for Jesus. 
That, that's, that's the thought that I want to suggest to you has always been there. From the very beginning, the first disciples, the, the first community of faith that was formed, again, we're going to look at that today, throughout the, the, all of Christian history, all of the centuries, this has been at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. When we sacrifice for others, it is the clearest expression of our love for Jesus. So let me show you a couple of examples of that. 2 Corinthians 8 first. Uh, and as I read through this, I'm going to give you a little bit of context and insight, but let me just dive in here. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, says this, and now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So Paul's obviously talking about a lot of things that we probably have no idea what he's talking about. He's talking about a special service uh, that, that, that the churches are participating in. And he's talking about an offering that was received from the Macedonian churches, which was in another area uh, in, in Rome. And what he's saying to the church at Corinth, he says, here's what you need to know about these churches. We didn't even have to ask them. We showed up and they begged us to take their resources for an offering that we were receiving that they wanted to participate that, that, that strongly. That was their desire to participate in this offering. So let me tell you what this offering was. You may, may or may not know that in the early church, the first Christians really came in two different categories. In the very beginning, almost all of those who, who became followers of Jesus were formerly Jews. So in the Gospels, all of the disciples who followed Jesus, Jesus himself, and almost all of his, uh, those in, in his audience who heard his message, almost all of them came from a Jewish background. There were a few exceptions along the way, but that was the background of almost everyone in the very early uh, portion of the church. After the resurrection of Jesus and the conversion of a man named Paul, who was also a Jew, the, the Christian faith began to grow outside the, the boundaries of Jerusalem and Israel throughout the Roman Empire as Paul went on missionary journeys to all of these different places called like Corinth and Thessalonica and Galatia and Philippi, some of the, the letters that we find in the New Testament. So you have Jewish people who have become Christians, and as Paul has gone outside of the boundaries of Jerusalem, he has converted people who didn't come from a Jewish background. They, they came from lots of different backgrounds, but religiously speaking, they had all been pagans, meaning that they had served the gods of Rome. That, that was how, how they had lived their entire lives, and they had made a conversion to becoming followers of Jesus. Well, there was this question that came up in the very early years of the church, and that was, do you first have to become a Jew before you can become a Christian? Like in the beginning, that's how it all worked. All, everyone was a Jew, and then they became a Christian. But then there were these new people who came along who, weren't, who didn't come from a Jewish background. And there was this question like, well, how many steps did they have to take? How many hops are involved in this process? And the Jews were the ones who said, wait a second, we think you need to be a little bit more before you get to be a part of our group. So there was this tension between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And in the middle was this man, Paul. 
a man who had a Jewish background, but Paul's argument was, no, you don't have to become a Jew first to become a Christian. You can simply claim faith in Jesus. And there was this tension between these two groups. So from the Jewish perspective, it was about preserving their heritage, their history, the way in which they had been raised, the the things that they treasured about about their, their former faith. For the Gentiles, it was like, well, wait a second. They don't even want us. What does this mean? What, like, we can't even get in the group. We got to know the secret handshake or something to get in. It was, it was this tension between these two groups. So on top of that, on top of that, the persecution of Christians did not start outside Jerusalem in all these places that Paul visited in, in Corinth and Thessalonica and Philippi and uh, in, in all, all those areas outside of Jerusalem. That's not where the persecution of Christians started. Eventually, it would get there. Eventually, the Christians living in Rome and all, the, all throughout the Roman Empire would face the persecution that we have heard of in the early portion of the church. But it started in Jerusalem. And so at the time that Paul is writing this, at the time that he is going throughout all of these areas, you have these two groups of Christians facing very different circumstances. Those living outside of Jerusalem were often more wealthy than those within Jerusalem, and they weren't experiencing any persecution. No one really cared about what they were doing because they were so small in number. But in Jerusalem, the situation was different. In Jerusalem, the, the, the Jewish Christians were suffering under intense persecution. And so here's Paul between these two groups, and here's essentially what he said. He said, okay, along the way, we've made some mistakes, okay? Just starting out this whole church thing, we, we, we probably haven't been as welcoming as we maybe should have. This group's mad at this group, and they don't really feel welcome. There's, there's some tension here. We've messed some things up in the middle. We, we've gotten some things wrong, but here's something we're not going to mess up. We have plenty, and they have need. We, we, we may not get all of this doctrine, this, this understanding of how, how Jesus wants us to live right, but we're going to get this thing right. We're going to sacrifice for one another. And so Paul was traveling to these churches that that, that he had started, and he's speaking to these Gentile Christians, and he's saying, hey, I know that in the very beginning they they really didn't want you, (laughs) but they're a part of you now, and they're hurting, and they're suffering, and, and so we're going to sacrifice for them. And so pass the plate. Let's collect some funds. We're going to send that to the Jerusalem Christians, to the Jewish Christians, because we want to make sure that they are cared for. And so Paul is writing to Corinth to, to, to encourage them to participate in this offering that the Macedonian churches have already participated in. So he continues. He says this. So we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. Here's what that means. We're sending Titus with an offering plate, okay? Put some money in it is what he's saying to this, to this church. And, and then listen to what he says next. Since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, since you're doing everything so well, Paul says, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Now, hear this next part. I would never say this to you, but this is Paul. This is what he says to them. He says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. I mean, this is the point where you're thinking, I'm not sure about this, but this is what he says. I want to compare it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. In other words, just follow the example of Jesus. 
This is what he has done. Here's my judgment on what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. In other words, they've already collected an offering in the year before. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. So very simple idea in the very beginning of the scriptures. We might ask the question, well, why? Why is, Paul, why is Paul doing this? Is this for his own personal gain? Is this because, well, it seems like from the very beginning, all the church cared about was money. That's, is, is that why? Or is it simply this? That from the very beginning, sacrificing for others has always been the clearest expression of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to share our love for Jesus. You may wonder, how did the church grow from these very humble beginnings to becoming, in a very short time, the, the, the leading religion in the Roman Empire? If you are really interested in history and want to learn more about that, I would recommend this book to you called The Rise of Christianity. Now, if you're not a history person, if you're not sort of interested in sociological movements, then don't read this book unless you're struggling with insomnia, and then go get a copy. It will help you out greatly. But Rodney Stark, it's an interesting book because what he does is he doesn't look at, oh, well, just Christianity was so much better than everything else, and that's why it won. But rather what he does is he traces some movements in history and how those movements led to the expansion of the Christian movement. And it's many things that you would never think about. So one of the things that he talks about in chapter 4 is the presence of two epidemics that happened in the 2nd and 3rd century. So in the second century, it's, it's estimated that between a fourth to a third of the population in Rome died from this deadly disease that was spread throughout the Roman Empire, including Marcus Aurelius, who was the leader of Rome at the time. In the third century, it's estimated that at its height, 5,000 people a day were dying in the city of Rome alone. So massive, massive epidemic, massive plague that moved through the Roman Empire during these two, the two pieces uh, in, in the second century and in the third century. And Stark talks about how, in the midst of this loss of life, the, the Christian movement expanded during these two time periods. And he gives three reasons for that. The first is, he says that Christianity had a way of dealing with and talking about death that other religions didn't. They had a way of dealing with suffering and talking about death. That for the Christians, death wasn't the end. Death was a new beginning. One of the bishops at the time wrote this. He said, by contempt of death, we prepare for the crown. So there was this understanding that death was not the end, that suffering actually had meaning, that there was a whole other chapter to your story. And so Christians had a way of dealing with the suffering. And he argues that because they had a way of dealing with it, they actually had a higher survival rate than others going through this period of time. They had hope in the midst of what everyone was facing. But the most compelling reason, he said, is that in, the, in these two periods of time, during the massive loss of life, when people lost the bonds that, that really anchor our life, they lost husbands and wives and, and, and moms and dads and brothers and sisters. And then because of this massive loss of life and, and this breakdown in the social structure, People turned to those who cared for their loved ones in the midst of their sickness. And he argues that during these two periods of time, the Christians, far above all others, did this work. One of the bishops uh, at the time wrote this about the nurses and doctors who cared for the sick. He said, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another, heedless of danger 
They took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infested by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and caring for others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. And he contrasts this with how the other groups responded to the disease. He said the heathen behaved in a very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. If you jump forward to the fourth century, the the expansion of the Christian movement was so dramatic during these two periods of time, that the emperor at the time, Julian, actually started a campaign to increase the effectiveness of pagan charities. He was really mad about how the the, the Christians seemed to be caring for people that others weren't. And this is what he wrote at the time. I think that when the poor happened to be neglected and overlooked by the priests, meaning the pagan priests, the impious Galileans, which is how he referred to the Christians, observed this, and devoted themselves to benevolence. The impious Galileans, the Christians, they support not only their poor, but ours as well. And he says, everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. Now, why did they do that? Why did they do that? Why did they nurse and care for the sick? Why did they take care of not only their poor, but but all of the poor? Very simply, because from the very beginning, sacrificing for others has always been the clearest expression of our love for Jesus. That story reminds me of of this picture I want to show to you now. Most of you probably recognize uh, this man. Uh, Up until very recently, he was serving as a doctor in Liberia. Uh, he was there simply providing medical care to, to people living uh, in that uh, African country. And while there, the Ebola uh, outbreak happened. And as you probably know, uh, Ken Brantley contracted that disease. He was one of the first to receive an experimental drug and to be flown back to America to receive care. Uh, and, and I want to show you one more picture of Dr. Brantley. This was taken on the day that he was released from that hospital in Atlanta after he had been cured from the Ebola disease. Here's what you may not know about Dr. Brantley. He only became a doctor after he decided that he wasn't cut out to be a preacher. And this is what he said in a recent interview. He said, faith is central to my life. I am who I am, and I do what I do because of my faith. He said, I believe that God has used the people in my life, my parents, my friends, and my community. And I feel like God called me to be a medical missionary. And that's why... I was in Liberia in the first place. Why? Because sacrificing for others has always been the clearest expression of our love for Jesus. In in that fourth chapter, this is how Stark wraps up this section as as he talks about how Christians cared for so many uh, during that time and grew in in response to that. He he says, alien to paganism was the notion that because, because God loves humanity, Christians cannot please God unless they love one another. Indeed, as God demonstrates his love through sacrifice, humans, according to the Christian understanding, must demonstrate their love through sacrifice on behalf of one another. And he writes, these were 
revolutionary ideas that absolutely change the world. This is what Paul says at the end of that section I read to you. He says to the church at Corinth, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much and the one who gathered little did not have too little. I will never forget a night when God shared with me um, a deeper understanding of this particular scripture. Some of you may know that for the last several years, I, I've run a marathon every fall to help raise money for Zoe Ministry. It's a ministry that we're a part of that is um, changing the lives of orphans in Africa, moving them from a, a life of poverty and hopelessness to a life where they can sustain themselves. And that first season as I was preparing for the marathon, God helped me understand in a very clear way why I was doing what I was doing. So it was a late, late one night, it was in the middle of the night actually, and my son was crying in his bed. And what you need to know about to understand the story is I'm not the parent that usually hears the child crying, and so I'm usually not the one who gets out of bed. I mean, I'm like heavy sleeper, tornado, I'm fine. You know, I, I'm, never, I'm never disturbed. But for some reason that night, I heard my son. And this was four years ago, so he was two or three at the time. And so I got out of bed, and I went into his room, and he wasn't awake. He was just crying. You know, he was just kind of restless in his sleep, crying there. And so I sat down by his bed, and I just put my hand on his back, and I started soothing him, hoping that he would fall back asleep and, and everything would be okay. And I don't know how you feel when you're awake in the middle of the night. I mean, I don't remember my name, you know, anything about, I mean, I'm just in a real fog. It's, it's a really, I have to figure out where I am, you know. It, it's just a, a strange thing to be, for me to be uh, woken up in the middle of the night. But I'm, so I'm there in this, this fog, this, this not any clarity, and, and three words were, were laid on my heart. That's how I would describe it. I, I would not, it, in my life, I would not describe God speaking to me like microphone, megaphone, David. That's not, that's not what's happened for me. What's happened for me is there have been moments in my life where suddenly words were there. That's how I would describe it. The words were placed on my heart. They were present in my mind. And in the midst of that fog, three words were immediately clear and they were there. And the words were, this is why. This is why. And, and there in that, in that moment, I, there was just this clarity. There's, there's a child on the other side of the world who is crying just as your son is crying. There's a child on the other side of the world who was loved as deeply by his mother and his father as you love your child. And no one is there. This is why. This is why. You have plenty. You have an abundance and there is someone who you don't know. You've never seen them. You don't know them. But there is someone who has need. This is why. 
So today, if again, if this is your home, we're, we're going to ask you to share these cards. And as you do, I, I just want to invite you to do something. I want to invite you to, to join me in something. For some of you, I know you've, you've done this many times before. You've been a, a faithful member, member here or in another church, and this is just a part of your life. You, you have you've done this so many times that it's become routine uh, of, of sharing a portion of what you have brought in for the sake of others. Some of you, this may be the very first time that you've ever done this. We may have some, some young people who, who are uh, engaging this message, and, and you may have just gotten your first job, and you're, you're, you finally have something that you have to share, and this may be a, a brand new thing for you, or you may just be here today, and, and again, you're just a guest, and, and we hope that you've been blessed in this service. But here's what I invite us all to do. As that plate is passed, and, and, and if you, whether you place something in there or not, that you would simply say in your heart, or, or very softly with your word, with, with your mouth, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I want you to make the connection that this is why we do what we do. Because we love Jesus. And when we sacrifice for others, it is the clearest way that we not only participate in God's love for them, but also show our love to God. And as we receive the offering today, what I would challenge you to do, whether it's in this moment or, or in the week ahead, I would challenge you in your own time of prayer, of being still and silent before God, that you would ask God to place on your heart the name or the face of someone who he would want you to sacrifice for. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a spouse or a child or a friend at work or, or a relationship that has not gone the way that you would want it to. There's been a fracture there. But that we would all together ask God, God, who would you call us to sacrifice for? Who would you call us to give to? Who would you call us to, to forgive, to let go of that hurt that may be damaging that relationship? Who would you call us to sacrifice for as an expression of our love for you? Because throughout the entirety of Christian history. That's been the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to sacrifice and to share and to give. So would you join me today in simply saying together, we love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. Let's pray. God, all of our life is a response to what you have already done for us. You made us, you shaped us, you formed us in a very particular way with a dream, with a goal that we would reflect the best parts of you. And Lord, we know that's true because we've seen it, we've experienced it. There have been moments in life where we have given, where we have sacrificed, and something has come alive in us, something that we didn't even know was there. And Lord, we all know, we are all aware that there are times in our life, there are memories, there are experiences that we can remember where we have not done that, where we've missed out on living in the way that you have called us to live. So we give you thanks for forgiveness and for grace and for the opportunity that continues for each of us to sacrifice and to share and to give as an expression of our love for you. And so receive today, Lord, our joy and our delight in the opportunity to participate in what you are doing in the world. Bless all that is shared in this time and speak to us on how you would lead us to continue to be a blessing to others. This is our prayer in Jesus' name.
Amen.